Welcome to Prestigious Minds, a podcast about the history of entrepreneurs, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I am Jeremiah, joined with my co-host Rob, and we have a few announcements before we jump into this week's episode. First, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show and that you're having a wonderful week. Secondly, you can find us on social media at pmindspod, that is the letter P-M-I-N-D-S... P-O-D, and that will be our Twitter handle, our Instagram, and then on Facebook you can find us at Prestigious Minds. I won't keep you any further from your reason why you're here, so let's jump into it. Jeremiah, how's it going, my man? It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a little while since we've last recorded. Now for the listeners, it's been roughly a month, which I know for a podcast is a very long time to wait, but... We haven't recorded since before Christmas. Yeah, it's been over two months. It's been three. since November, I believe. Oh, November has it been? I've been before Thanksgiving. Yeah, that no, that sounds right. I think that sounds right. So there's been a lot of stuff going on in the world. Some crazy stuff. UFOs. War. Well, Ohio train wrecks. Ohio doing Ohio things. It's crazy. From a meme to an actual ecological disaster. Which is horrible, by the way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Don't don't downplay that. I was just, you know, drawing a kind of a crass uh, perspective. But you're right. So since we've recorded last, what's been the most notable thing to you? Something that many people may not have heard about is the Russians officially pulling out of the START Treaty, which is the primary treaty of our relations with Russia in regard it, now that's in regards to um, military and um, I believe like kind of set the ground rules for what is acceptable in terms of like number of tanks you can have uh, w- weapons used in war what kind of war you can wage and what constitutes as actual um, damn, I, I can't think of the word. Like not fair combat almost. Yeah, not, I'm trying to think of, it isn't reasons to go to, to, to go to war, but, um, legitimate, uh, legitimate, like, um, treaty violations, I guess. Yeah. I can't think of the word. Maybe it'll come to me as we talk about it, but, but does yeah. that count as, does that mess with the nuclear doctrine? Yes. Well, well, I don't want to say... Basically, this officially <clears throat> absolves Russia from being held accountable via the treaty by the other partners in the treaty, which would be like, you know, the European countries in the U.S. So, this isn't a statement saying, we are going to use whatever we want in the war in Ukraine. It basically just means if something happens... We don't have to justify via treaty of using certain actions, and this also frees us up to do certain things without anyone saying, oh, you broke a treaty. Now, that doesn't mean it's acceptable to use nuclear arms or intercontinentalist, you know, ballistic missiles or whatever, but this kind of is the uh, um, bureaucratic red tape being removed from that. Yeah, that's, that's just insane to me. I mean, this is... a. Okay, it's always been a scary time to be alive, especially for the last 20 years. But this is, this is, I don't know if it's going back to a norm or this is deviating from, but it's not the most pleasant news to hear. 
As of right now, I don't think it really means much, but it is something I think that people should uh, know about. And I think it's worth going and reading up on um, other things. Um, Chinese spy balloon shot down. (laughs) Yeah, a couple of them, yeah. Well, I think we found out that it was only the one. The other unidentified objects, I think, were independent um, research balloons from private companies and or like university like groups. What about the one from Canada? Was that was shot down by us with uh, under direction of the Justin Trudeau? I think that was actually a. I don't know about one. that one. I don't think it was. No. I think all the other ones because they called off any like uh, debris recovery. Yeah, so <laughs> it's just some kid science project. I saw that meme earlier. Yeah, it's pretty funny. But so we got the Chinese spy balloons. We got Russia, um, the Ohio X. Now, the Ohio um, train derailment is pretty significant, and it can kind of—it's kind of topical to this discussion we're about to have, because some consider this a <clears throat> a fault of uh, the railroads. Railroad companies, um, not to be mentioned, but there was a strike earlier, I think early or later last year, maybe it bled into this year, on um, workers trying to get, you know, a couple more days off, being able to use some of their vacation or or medical leave, and a lot of them left. So there's been some instances where some of the security measures or safety measures were not perhaps followed and it could have been that is allegedly could have been a cause of the derailment i do have some concern with government agencies downplaying the severity of possible toxic chemicals that they were doing that they were releasing in the atmosphere to prevent an explosion which i understand that but at the same time telling people that there's nothing toxic about this air which i believe when burned had um turned into a gas that was used in world war one yep. or not mustard gas but maybe hydrochloride like a, right yeah it was like a chlorine type base gas or something because it was vinyl chloride was the main vinyl board yeah um uh, combustion, well, it wasn't a combustible, but they use it to make plastic. Right. And <clears throat> uh, this is significant because the people are actually that are that are living in, uh, it's, it's, is it Palestine? Is it called East Palestine? Yeah. Um, they're having really bad, like there's been some very bad health conditions, uh, people that live down there. I uh, saw a, a YouTube video of um, a guy that was on the, on the ground there and he was talking about he, someone he was talking to went to their house for like 30 minutes after the evacuation to get something and they came out and they just couldn't breathe. There were like some um, hive type marks, you know, maybe uh, not chemical burns, but there's a, definitely a skin reaction just from being in their house for 30 minutes, which is crazy. Yeah, so definitely some not okay stuff going on, and I think the containment and regulation of information coming out. Now, obviously, I think we've seen more of that um, information being made public, and due to public pressure against these organizations, and not even just the private, but like EPA and and other, like, I mean, at one point, 
there was an article talking about how the governor like applied for like FEMA aid and FEMA like turned them down initially because they're like, Oh, this is a man-made disaster by a private company. We can't get involved. Meanwhile, you have people that are allegedly breathing in and drinking toxic toxins from the rack. Yeah. I think, I think the governor actually asked for, or he said, you know, he talked to the president of the United States, like in the president's, you know, President Biden was like, "Hey, we'll get you. We'll help you out if you need to." And then he was denied um, emergency. What do you call that when it's, it's emergency disaster? Um, emergency help, pretty much at that time. <clears throat> so I don't know. It's it was reversed, there. I believe. They did yeah. eventually agree to help, but but when you have organizations like the EPA who were downplaying and apparently not testing or not securing their tests where they were contaminated. You know, some of the tests that they were sending off to labs were contaminated, and so they were not showing. Oh, I, did, I did not know that. Yeah, so well, I won't. I won't say contaminated, but they were not um, preserved. So I guess there's some sort of half life to any kind of the chemicals that are in those tests. I'm not even pretend how it works, but they were um, they were not preserved, so it showed much less of an impact than there actually was, and it's still ongoing now, and it probably will be. I mean, decades before we actually get what actually, like, the whole environmental impact of what's going on. No, I do think this is a serious <clears throat> environmental impact. But I do want to mention this because I saw a lot of people that I know and other people sharing, like, some of them were kind of memes. But you know how, like, people, like, make the joke, but it's kind of, like, half serious, half joking to kind of, like, downplay the seriousness to kind of, like, quell down any serious anxiety like especially for people that there's like comparing it to like oh this is uh an ecological disaster on scale with chernobyl and i just want to say that all jokes aside if you say that you don't know anything about chernobyl because a, a, a nuclear meltdown is not a casual chemical spill that's going to have like cancer causing agents years down the road it's a lot worse than that it's significantly worse than that. The chemical spill, as heinous and horrible as it is, is not the level of Chernobyl. Like, you cannot live in Chernobyl today. These people right. may not necessarily be able to return home, or they may have to go through a deep clean, but this is not radioactive particles. They're going to, you know, kill babies in the mother womb or, you know, kill you in, like, six years of debilitating cancer. Now, right. it, can, now not, it, it can cause cancer, I'm sure, but... I wouldn't compare the two. I think if you compared them to, it's a terrible ecological disaster. BP, the PP's oil spill, right? And I mean, they're all they're all bad. This is the one that we're we're seeing now, and it's it, it may turn out to be. I mean, it's been so early that we don't think of it as you know a BP or a Chernobyl, but some people are speculating it's going to be to that scale of publicity. Well, I do think that, and maybe I'm going too hard on the people making memes about, oh, this is just like Chernobyl. I think the original intent of that saying was the fact that it initially was being downplayed as serious, which obviously, as we know from history, Chernobyl, as much as we do know about it, was severely downplayed um, 
Right. When it initially happened. And for years and years and years later, it was still that way until like modern time. We had access to certain files that we didn't know about. So I guess you could consider they do have similar, (laughs) similar beginnings because when it first happened, you know, the companies were like, oh, and the EPA was like, oh, it's not, you know, we're going to contain everything's fine. Same thing happened in the first hours of the Chernobyl um, reactor meltdown and explosion. Yeah. But, but they're going in different routes now there's i think that right now they're trying to actually contain the stuff and they're not um downplaying anything yeah so this is all from you know we're hearing this at the same way that everyone else is hearing the news so like we're no experts we're not health experts we're not you know professional um reporters or journalists or anything so like this is all small talk and just um interesting tidbits of the happenings currently so i don't want anyone like taking this and being like i heard this on a history podcast that's half joke so right but but it is fascinating and there is some seriousness about it and i think it's uh worth mentioning um especially given earlier to wrap it back into today's topic which we will get to shortly we are back Again, we're back. And this time, we're talking about the Pinkertons here on Prestigious Minds. Yeah, buddy. The whole Pinkertons. Old Pinky. I don't think, I don't, I don't think that's it. No, no, pink, no Pinky. Okay. No, okay. Um, so, Rob, do you want to give us a very, very uh, summarized version or the, uh, whatchamacallit, um, disclaimer that we need to provide for this episode? Yeah, so since we're talking about an actual operating company, uh, everything that we're going to say is under the stipulation of um, it's all alleged. Anything that may be construed as bad or misleading or illegal from this company, it's all alleged, every bit of it. And we may just make up some stuff, fictitious stuff, that's not even remotely close to the truth. And it's also mainly for, like comedic purposes right of course this is a very comedic historical podcast but this one i mean this podcast here is gonna be a little special anyway (laughs) okay now that we've gotten that out of the way do you mind telling us who the pinkertons are from a uh 10,000 foot view Well, that 10,000-foot view is the Pinkertons are an organization, a detective organization that was started in the mid-1800s by a Chicago police chief. No. Close, but no. He was the first Chicago detective named Alan Pinkerton. He was hired by a police chief. I thought he was a police chief. No. Nope. Well, okay, that's 10,000 feet. So, it's a police guy... That it's started. Not He's just a private citizen that they hired to be a detective. He, wait, you can be a de- what? You yeah, can be a detective. This is the 1840s, my man. You, you can do all kinds of crazy shit. Was he like? As a, hold on, as a as someone who kind of understands law, a detective you have to be like that's an actual rank in in the police and. Sheriff Not officer. when you're the first one. <laughs> so you're saying he's the first. Okay, okay. He was the so f- he's considered <coughs> the first like police detective, I believe, ever in the U.S. So he was like, I guess you would say he was bonded by him or deputized or whatever. Yeah, he, he was some, deputized. 
That is, he was deputized by the Chicago Police Department. I wonder, is that where the, so that's where the detectives came from? Yep. Wow. So, anyway, he started his own company in the 1840s, 50s, somewhere around there. I think it was 1846. Nice, that's very exact. Good, good stuff. And they have been operating ever since. So, they've gone from, you know, being hired by different companies, the United States, and now they work in, uh, um, like, global security. Oh, well, um, security in the sense of, um, like, I don't know, cyber security, asset security. Um, I mean, they, they work <coughs> as risk management and private security yeah, for, so they, like, big-name people and CEOs, athletes, celebrities. I think they do. I think they dabble in all that all that kind of security. I remember reading that. So, they've... Even though they've changed some, some of their stuff, they've been doing the same thing since the 1840s, which is quite impressive. I don't know how many more companies you can actually... Like, that do the similar thing than... As the, as the Pinkertons and still be in operation today. Yeah, so I lied. They started officially in 1850. Yeah, um, we're close enough. 1846. I don't know where I got that number from, to be honest with you. I think, that, so let's start from the beginning a little bit. This isn't going to be like a... Was it a uh, documentary over Pinkerton Detective Agency? But just to give you some historical context, it was started by a man named Alan J. Pinkerton, who was born in Glasgow, Scotland, in 1819. So, one very ironic thing about him is that he and his wife and family had to flee Great Britain due to um, political pressure. Because he was part of a group that fought for more workers' rights. That's going to be very ironic in a few minutes. Yeah. He was a cooper by trade. So once him and his wife got over here, they lived in Dundee, Illinois, about 50 miles northwest of Chicago. And he started his own cooperage. And what, then is a, what is a cooper? I have no idea what that is. They build wooden... Barrels. Oh, no. Like like Ooh. whiskey barrels. Oh, even better. Except for back then, they pretty much used them for everything. Um, I believe his father was also a policeman who died in the line of duty in Britain. So there is a little bit of like a legacy lineage when it comes to police work there. Mm. Um, anyway... So, to get to the beginning of the Pinkerton Detective Agency and how it was founded, Alan went to an uninhabited island to go look for some trees for, uh, so he can get some more uh, staves built for his barrels and noticed a campsite. Now, there was no one there, and he was like, hmm, that's kind of weird. So, he left... And decided to kind of, I guess, like watch the island and ended up like going back and 
watching, I guess, from afar and found that it was a camp of counterfeiters. They're counterfeiting silver coins, I believe. So we went to the police chief and basically told him, hey, I know where these people are counterfeiting money. And they eventually, like, arrested the gang and whatnot. And that was, like, his first, I guess, uh, bust. But he wasn't a detective. Anyway, he was applauded for this by many local businesses who were the victims of counterfeiting, obviously. And... Found that he had a pretty good knack for it, so he continued doing that kind of thing here and there until eventually they deputized him and made him the first police detective in Chicago. Wow. What a snitch. <laughs> um, but apparently he was really good at this kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I imagine so. Imagine being a professional tattletale. Nah, I'm just kidding. That's funny. I mean, it sounds like it starts off pretty good. But, um, like, what do you think law enforcement did back then before there were, you know, people investigating crime? They would arrest people that they could. Well, I'm, I mean, I wonder if they just roamed about and like, hey, there's a crime happening and then they wouldn't arrest them. But if there's a crime that happened and they didn't see it, they're like, well, I guess it's over. I mean, they would look into it probably. <clears throat> probably use witness testimonies but they didn't have any consistency when it came to evidence gathering or anything like that i I could imagine yeah uh, well there's probably a lot of um or a lack of resources amongst the police and constables and stuff i would think there is now i'm sure there was then yeah um so he so i'm gonna kind of finish Alan Pinkerton's, like, his personal story real quick, because that's not the main focus of this episode. So once he became a detective, he eventually founded the uh, Pinkerton Detective Agency in 1850, and their main job was to um, basically track bandits and counterfeiters, and eventually they got involved in chasing down, like, alleged, like, train robbers and bank robbers like Butch Cassidy and Jesse James. Um, one side note here is that Pinkerton was an avid abolitionist, so he was involved in the Underground Railroad pretty pretty heavily. And for that reason and for his, I guess, good de- detective skills, the um, government, federal government, during the outbreak of the Civil War, hired his agency to try to do some detective work for the Confederate, or not for the Confederate, but again, like in the Confederacy to kind of get information. Turns out they weren't very good at that, so they weren't good at espionage, <laughs> <laughs> ironically. Um, gave them some bad information in terms of either over overestimating and underestimating like um, Confederate troop sizes and, mil- and military movements, that kind of thing. So they kind of weren't very useful for that. One thing that they claim credit for that I guess we could assume is mostly true is on in 1860 or 1861, um, Lincoln was to be inaugurated after the election and 
he was traveling through Boston to get to Washington, D.C., and Maryland was a very split state, um, you know, for slavery and other things in the Civil War. So there's a lot of people in Maryland who didn't like him. And there was intelligence stating that there was a possibility of an assassination attempt that would take place um, in Boston whenever Lincoln traveled through there. And the reason why this was was because they published his exact movements and itinerary of the president in the local newspaper. So everyone knew exactly where he was going to be and when he was going to be there. Kind of like funny, but okay. Anyway, so... Allen and I guess some of his agents suggested or advised the president and his advisors to take the night train through the middle of the night. So travel in Boston in the middle of the night instead of going in per- like in, in the middle of the day and take a separate train route through Boston that they were originally going to take. And that is what they did. So, supposedly foiling the plot of the assassination attempt on Lincoln. Now, they also had the first woman detective um, that rode the train with Lincoln, make sure nothing happened to him. What what was her name, Rob? Uh, Kate Warren. Yeah, Kate Warren. And supposedly, she never fell asleep. And this is where the term, we never sleep, was coined, supposedly. Wow. Oh, man, just imagine they're just one and one now. <laughs> if I only, if only. I mean, they did, you know, it's pretty good, I guess. Yeah, so let's see. Um, continuing on with Alan, he left, I guess he, you know, left the Union Army. And then this is where he, his biggest. I guess work came in the form of trying to track down and capture different uh, outlaws. So one of those first was the Reno gang, which they were um, successful in capturing. And then came the issue of Jesse James. Now, I'm not going to go into this story yet. Because I kind of want to save that for more of a Pinkerton specific, but let's just say that Alan had a very strong feelings towards Jesse James and his gang because they would capture his detectives and tor- torture and kill them. And there was actually a very bad thing that the Pinkerton agency ended up doing trying to catch him that gave them a really tarnished look. And this is before like the Union stuff happened, like you know, 10, 15, 20 years later. Um, Pinkerton ended up dying in Chicago in 1884, where his um, sons took over. Now, how he died is he allegedly slipped on the pavement and bit his tongue, resulting in gangrene. Ooh. Contemporary reports give conflicting causes, such as he succumbed to a stroke he had a year earlier, or to malaria. Basically, anything that normally killed people back then. Oh, yeah. Just imagine, like, he died somehow. Imagine, like, gangrene on your tongue. That's gotta suck. (coughs) 
so yeah, that is a very brief synopsis of Alan Pinkerton, which was the founder of the Pinkerton Detective Agency. And now we can dive more into the agency itself and some of the uh, things that it has been a part of, you know, in history. We mentioned the Jesse James debacle a minute ago. So, what happened was, the Jesse James gang, which I actually don't know the name of, and uh, so I'm not going to give you that because I don't, I don't care about Jesse James that much. Um, needless to say, they were the Pinkertons were hired to capture Jesse James and his gang. And what ended up happening is they would send detectives to go figure out where he was. And then a particular detective got captured and killed. Well, supposedly he was tied to a tree, tortured, and then shot. And they found him. And so Alan took this personally. He's like, you know what? I'm going to go hunt Jesse down, and I'm going to capture him. And this was like, I think this was kind of like his personal vendetta, is is what it ended up being for him and for other detectives. And he is quoted, Pinkerton is quoted (coughs) saying that, We will meet, when we meet, it must be the death of one or both of us. Talking about Jesse James. Wow. So he's legitimately ready to, like, throw down. Yeah. So, what happened was they got a tip that Jesse James and his brother, I believe his other, like his brother named Frank were at his mother's Missouri farmhouse. And so in the middle of the night, some Pinkerton agents, along with, I guess, a few locals, um, went to the house and demanded that she give up, you know, Jesse and his brother that were wanted. Supposedly, she declined the offer. And there's some... There's some quotes as quotes saying that they threw a lantern in there and it caught on fire. Others say it was like some kind of explosive, probably dynamite, to flush them out. Now, one of those particular articles that I was reading about this said that it was a lantern that they threw into the darkened house up. Uh, to aid invisibility, which personally I think is a load of hogwash. I mean, that even back then, I don't think that'd make a lot of sense to do that. No. And then there was an explosion. And when they went inside, they found Jesse's mom, Zerelda. What a name. Um, her right arm was blown off. And then um, Jesse's half, like little brother, half, half brother, was um, dead, Archie. And he was eight years old. He was fatally wounded on the floor from the explosion. Reuben Samuel, which was um, Zerelda's third husband, and three young children were also inside. I think one of those might have been Archie, but 
Needless to say, this tarnished the reputation. So normally, up until this point, people were on Detective the Pinkerton side because they were known as kind of like capturing the bad guys and, you know, keeping the public safe. But this kind of swayed the uh, public in the opposite direction because they thought it was kind of negligent of them to just arbitrarily throw an explosive into a residential household of off a tip without any confirmation that Jesse James was even inside. Right. Seems like um, they kind of went vigilante, too. I mean, which has never been a good thing in the public eye. And I mean, we romanticize vigilantes now, but it's kind of, you don't want that. You want people who are actually trained and law-abiding people to do that yeah so if anything this helped build the jesse james legend and uh tarnish the pinkerton agency's reputation this is uh first of well not first of many instances like this but first of many bad situations they have found themselves in now I'm not going to be on the side of beating down the Pinkertons. I mean, yeah, they made some pretty bad decisions, but kind of like Rob and I were talking before the recording is, they're an agency, they're paid to do a job, and they're going to kind of go do that job. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to do it to the best. Yeah, and um, also the, judgment. The, those judgments were made by individuals, not the company. So just yeah. a caveat there. This was also bad for Alan Pinkerton because this was the first – failure that they had had because up until this point they're pretty much undefeated in tracking down criminals and capturing them so this was like a black eye turns out that jesse james and his brother were there at some point but someone had tipped them off that they the pinkertons were going to show up so they weren't there by the time pinkertons got there um some other notable people was the that that the pinkerton um, agents captured were the Molly Maguire gang of Irish terrorists. Um, they pursued Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid to Bolivia, where they were killed by local law enforcement. So those are a few other notable cases that they actually were somewhat successful in. There's also a few other, um, maybe the Reno gang I mentioned earlier. I don't know if that was one, but I do know that there was two other instances where they chased, uh, <laughs> chased wanted outlaws into Canada. Like one of them was in Ontario and they would capture them. One of those instances, they actually recovered 300,000 of stolen, uh, currency and merchandise. Wow. So they were so successful in, in, in a lot of ways. So it seems like in their, in, in their, in their inception, they were actually doing pretty good. Like until that, that point, you know, um, just James's family. But I mean, I mean, it could take one guy to kind of screw up the whole organization. Just imagine there, people were like, you know, maybe we shouldn't throw the, the grenade in there, or dynamite, whatever it was. And he had some lady who, yeah, <laughs> lantern. I say that with quotes. Um, <clears throat> I, never, I never heard of a lantern blowing someone's arm off. Yeah, that seems like a pretty substantial explosion. Like, I can understand maybe an old kerosene lantern, you're throwing it in, and maybe it like exploding, but not like exploding with actual like explosive force like you have to understand that's that kind of explosion like would definitely probably injure someone it's not gonna it wouldn't have the concussive force that like something uh like dynamite or some dynamite fueled 
bomb or something like that would would have. I mean, you're gonna have ignition from kerosene, but not. I wouldn't think you'd have concussion. Yeah, unless there was like a can of kerosene sitting next to it. Supposedly, maybe. I mean, yeah. who, who knows? I mean, that, that that could be possible. But knowing that this was in the 1860s or 1870s, I doubt it. I mean, can kerosene even ignite? I mean, can it even explode? I'm sure it can. I mean, I'm sure it can, but like in normal... Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, that happened. That's crazy. Yeah, so that that is one of the... I would say... I wouldn't call it a highlight, but a, a, a specific point in time for the Pink Detective Agency. Probably like their first blunder. It is their first blunder. Now, a lot of y'all may be wondering, well, where did this go with the Jesse James saga? Well, a lot of you would probably hope that, oh, they went and there was some showdown between... The Pinkertons and James, and they ended up capturing him or killing him. And it's like, nah, he actually, James met his end <laughs> at another criminal who was seeking his bounty. So, sadly, Alan and or the Pinkerton agents never actually got their, um, their vengeance. Yeah, yeah. Or their revenge, whatever. Right. That's kind of an anticlimactic end to that story. As it most of the time usually is. Yeah. It's not very romantic. No. No. So, I mean, that kind of, it's kind of weird because, well, what the Pinkertons do today is not the same as what they did then, which is crazy. Well, they were seen as like the beginning of, well, they were, they were mercenaries of, they were basically like mercenary police people for hire. And they most of them were hired by like, um, I guess sometimes instances like single individuals, Maybe uh, municipalities and yeah, yeah, villages. to go track Towns. criminals that they didn't have jurisdiction to go chase, right? Um, I mean, this is, you know, before they had the ability to, you know, like track people like that, and apparently, um, the Pinkertons are credited with inventing the mugshot. So that's hmm. pretty. That's pretty neat. And they were also like one of the first organizations to actually have like a collection of. Um, Evidence and files and criminal case files and all this stuff, which is pretty neat. Um, wow. They're even some say that they are the predecessors of the FBI and Secret Service. Well, that would make sense. They kind of do that job, or they did that job. The well, I don't know. Do we want to go in more of a timeline gesture here? I mean, we got a few different directions that we can go from the Jesse James story. There is the labor unions, which I think is what most people, when they hear the term like Pinkerton or Pinkerton agent, detective agency, they're going to think about the 1880s, 90s, maybe early early 1900 labor union disputes and strikes. Yeah, I think that's just a natural progression. Well, that's probably where we should go because we'll, we'll uh, jump to the future and talk about that afterwards because it doesn't stop in the... Uh in the 1800s or early 1900s. Depending on which resources that you read, you'll get one of two descriptions. One is during these labor disputes in the 1880s, 1890s, that the Pinkertons were these evil mercenaries hired by big, you know, big uh, monolith companies to put down the union strikes by force or any means necessary. And that they're 100% the bad guys. In other views, you'll have them downplay their actions as not that terrible. Now, 
This is all very um, summary of my own words, so this isn't from any particular one or anything. It's just a general statement, which, when you think about it, it would make sense. You're going to have two sides to every story. Now, conveniently, if you go to, I think, the modern website of the Pinkerton Agency, there is a pretty significant gap between the 1870s and the early 1900s of like 20 or 30 years where they conveniently do not mention the labor disputes that they were involved in. Which, like we said earlier, they're a continuous running company of like 150 years, so it makes sense that negative things such as the homestead strike, which we have mentioned, if you want to go listen to that specifically in the Carnegie series, um, I can understand why they wouldn't include that on their website. Yeah, me too. Um, I mean, it's bad publicity. Not, I don't care what you say, uh, that kind of publicity is never good. Yes. Now, if you look up the homestead strike... You're probably mostly going to find evidence that is going to lean towards the strikers as being the innocent people in the Pinkertons, and not just the Pinkertons, but also Carnegie Steel, Henry Frick, and any other people that were there to um, subdue or arrest the strikers as the bad guys. Now, I'm not a Pinkerton apologist by any means. I'm also not a union apologist, but... If you read into it, that specific instance was not really the fault of the Pinkerton agents. Now, I'm going to kind of give you a very quick synopsis of this. Is The homestead strike occurred due to Frick running the homestead steel mill. And he was trying to get more production and was not agreeing to the new union terms of you know, higher wages and less hours, if I remember correctly. And he instead reverted back to the old way of how labor used to work, which was primarily based on the price of raw materials going up and down and also demand. And so as demand grew, the wages of these people could grow. Now, I believe that this was the original intent. The only difference is, is that I think Frick may have modified this to cap the amount of growth that their wages could see based on demand so it wasn't a completely fluid scale now it could be completely messing up the uh, messing up the facts here but generally all you need to know is try to restrict them and so they were like um we're not doing that and so they shut down the mill they were protesting but not working henry decided to hire some unskilled laborers immigrant laborers they couldn't get in the mill because the strikers had taken it over and basically arrested it and built up a barricade or whatever in front of the mill, and so they couldn't access it. This is where the Pinkertons came in to try to disperse the strikers. Now, there's a few different angles you can look at it. You can say, well, they shouldn't have used like armed private mercenaries to disband strikers, but you have to realize that these strikers were not just standing there peacefully protesting they were they were also armed so that is something that needs to be acknowledged here at some point a fire a shot was fired i think from the striker side but not necessarily directly at the pinkerton agents but this was a very tense situation and therefore somewhat of a gunfight slash um, confrontation occurred and this is where a lot of people ended up dead i think 16 blue yeah, some people say that it was more on the striker side of death toll, and others, if you read other reports, it's like 10 to 11 Pinkerton agents to like four or five strikers. Needless to say, a lot of times the Pinkertons 
are the ones that are shown as the aggressors in the situation. I don't think it was either way. I think that both sides were probably in the wrong. But needless to say, this was, I think, the turning point of using the Pinkertons in disputes such as this. Because the Pinkertons were actually, I believe, brought in by the governor of the state. I believe that the Pinkertons were actually brought in by Henry Clay and um, Carnegie Steele. Um, now, there's a previous, I guess it's the Great Railroad Strike of like 1877. That was before this that the government actually used the Pinkertons in the strike. Okay. Which was actually, I think, more notable for the Pinkertons, but... The Homestead strike actually led to Congress implementing the Anti-Pinkerton strike, where they couldn't, or sorry, the Anti-Pinkerton Act, which means it limited the government's ability to use mercenaries or hired um, armed people to kind of do that, you know. So they, it, it may have been the government too in the Homestead strike, but I think it was. I think part of it was the local government had deputized. They were trying to they were trying to get deputized in that instance to be able to use lethal force. I believe is what it was. But don't okay. quote me on that. So I'm not trying to speak words into people's mouths that, you know, didn't exist. But yeah. At this point, especially in the eighteen nineties, at this point, Pinkertons are known as anti union people because they were hired by these large companies to go in and squash Strikers, whether they were peaceful or not. Again, I believe that was from. So, reading the um, this passage just, just says, you know, from 1872, 1893, was kind of their prime union breaking acts. Like they wanted to go, like that was their bread and butter, I guess you could say. Pay a lot of money to keep them workers in line. Oh, yeah. I mean, can you imagine the industrialization is in full swing? You're trying to make progress and maybe cutting corners, maybe paying people, maybe not what they either want or what you should. You know, we we have to thank industrialization for what we have now. But if you need strikers to stop striking, one way to do it is to... Uh, by force. Yeah, by force. And a lot of it was um, government-funded, too. So don't think that these companies did it all willy-nilly and just hired mercenaries. It was all under the um, the direction or at least the authorization of government officials. Yeah, basically giving them the green light to go in and know that the law was on their side if something came down. Right. And, it, I mean, if that were the case, then you would see Amazon, like, sending armed people to the uh, striking the uh, Amazon uh, strike, or sorry, the Am- Amazon unionizers, so. <coughs> or the railroad strikes. Right, yeah. Which I mean, is. So, so, needless to say, this is where the Pinkertons, I want to say kind of on a sad note, is primarily, I think, known today, not just in pop culture, but in general, this is where they made their name. So there's like two different things that you're going to think of is, oh, well, they captured bandits and and or, oh, they were the people who were the mercenaries coming in like busting up strikes and unionizers. Right. I like, mean, it probably happened innocently too. You had, you know, you had um, 
uh, strikers that were going in, and it is not unheard of that union, like bigger unions, would actually send muscle in to kind of get people to do what they wanted to. Um. So yeah, I mean. It- I'm not going to say that I know of any specific instances, but I think off the top of my head, I can think of, um, you know, reading about how sometimes they would twist the arm of maybe smaller groups within the company, like workers who maybe right. didn't want to unionize to kind of, I guess, twist their arm to get their vote. Yeah. I'm, I'm what you, I guess you consider the pro union option, but I have seen where unions will come in not under force or anything, but they'll use a, a hard sell tactic. Now I'm not saying unions are bad. I'm not saying you should always join a union, but it is a trope that they do come in with a hard sell. Yeah. I guess there's a whole bag of apples we can unpack with unions and, you know, good and bad and ugly with them at a different point. But so we, we've gotten to this point where we're in the early 1900s, if you're tracking on history of the Pinkertons. And so far we've discovered, you know, how they were founded, you know, good cause, tracking down bandits and outlaws, counterfeiters and robbers, for the most part being pretty good on that judgment. But they did, so along with the union busting and with the Jesse James debacle, they were also known to be to use a little bit of hard-nosed tactics. So sometimes they were considered a little brash in their uh, methods. You know, like they're not afraid to use a little bit of, you know, armaments and uh, rough and tumble, at least back then. I'm not talking about today. This is in all in historical context. I want to make sure that doesn't get misconstrued. We're talking yeah. about the 1800s here, not today. And this is alleged, by the way, allegedly. Yes, except for in the Union uh, homestead strike. We all know that guns were used. Right. It's documented. And stated. So um, they so they like to use... So at this time, they were loose cannon cops that played by their own rules, is what you're saying? I don't... So I don't want to say that that's what they did, but that I believe that that's how they were seen, especially after the union strikes and all this negativity, negative publicity of getting hired by, you know, the government in some instances, <clears throat> and then by these private companies and in other instances... They were basically guns for hire. At least that's how they're described. So I'm sure if you really want to dig deep, you can probably find other instances where this isn't the case. It's just, it's like the loudest, most eye-catching stories are going to be the ones that get published. And there are some instances where they did do good. Um, So, um, like for instance, not to jump too far ahead, but in 2005, they mobilized 313 agents to assist clients in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, Rita, and Willa. So there's a good one. In 1998, they successfully evacuated 413 uh, expatriates from Indonesia during the Asian currency crisis. Um, So, and they also, um, I mean, they've done these kind of things before where maybe not, it's, it's definitely motivated by money, but they have done good. Yeah, I mean... Their primary focus was, at least at the beginning, and I would say even in the middle, was to capture the hardened, basically to help tame the West, right? And the outlaws, like that's a people don't understand. Like we like to romanticize the the expansion West, but it was 
they call it the Wild West for a reason, and I don't mean that like in a, in a joking manner. Like it was crazy. If you look at some of the historical documents of what went on during the expansion westward, it was insane. Yeah, extremely dangerous. Extremely dangerous. And, like, it's kind of like I was saying earlier, like the legend of Jesse James and kind of being like that. Well, I actually don't know the legend of Jesse James off the top of my head. For some reason, I want to say that he was seen as somewhat of a Robin Hood character, but I don't know. Uh, you know, it was probably, no, I don't, it was, all that was romanticized during the uh, the Wild West movies and stuff and novels and whatnot. I mean, there's some people that probably idolize that um, that kind of person, but I don't think, I mean, they were definitely a problem. Well, they were murderers and, you know, bank robbers, train, well, stagecoach, stagecoaches and trains were the big targets. Cause they were the, they were, that was the easiest way to capture the large mother load of yeah. gold. I mean, can you imagine, um, so expanding westward, like I said earlier, is such a big deal and, making railroads and safe passage is so important. And then you have a bunch of bandits that are trying to screw people over like resources, materials, personnel, uh, innocent people trying to like go West or move to better themselves or take that risk. And then you have a bunch of people that are just trying to ex exploit the, um, the, that vulnerability. So I haven't, I have nothing for those kind of people. Yeah, and so the Pinkertons, that's how they built their reputation was, you know, taking these people down and capturing them. And they had the power, I guess, and especially at, at, at some point they had offices in Canada. So, like, they chased them into Canada and captured them. It wasn't like, oh, they went to Canada. That sucks. You know, they, they went after them. Yeah. I'm not saying they always, they always captured them, but they went after them. Yeah, I mean, you can't just – I mean, these people, these bandits – are, we're not very civilized people, and sometimes it took uncivilized methods to to get after them and get rid of them. Somewhat similar to like the gangster era of like the twenties and thirties, uh, which is also romanticized, which is insane to me. I mean, that's a whole different topic, but <clears throat> a crime and organized crime have always been romanticized by people who didn't have to live through it. Yeah, I mean. When you weren't the one living through it, and then you can try to pull out the flawed like nature of someone, and you follow it from their perspective, and try to like normalize it. Well, I don't want to say normalize it, but you try to have the sympathy, and it's like, oh, well, technically we're all flawed, and people need to be forgiven, and like, yeah, this is true, but there's also the harsh reality of these people just like went in and shot people and took their money. Right. <laughs> I mean. To simplify it, that's that's what happened. Yeah, uh, yeah. I guess the gangsters were more bank robbers and wasn't as concerned about the public. But the the bandits out west, I think, were way more um, gruesome. You know, there's at least a when you when you think about the 1920s gangsters, uh, they were more civil. They had rules, you know. Yeah. But I don't think that's the case for the um, the historic bandits of the wild west so do we want to bring this up to a i don't want to say like a conclusion quite yet but a uh 
a more modern thing. So we should at some point maybe talk about some of the, I guess, less juicy, like positive things, which we kind of mentioned a little bit that the Pinkerton Detective Agency was involved in. Yeah. Um, but there is a big irony. So the irony that we, which if you haven't caught it already, Alan Pinkerton left Great Britain basically in a way trying to help form unionization of workers' rights in Great Britain and was, you know, politically ostracized him and his, you know, allies in that regard. And so he left to prevent being jailed for his political beliefs in that regard, right? And then his company, which I think the majority of the union busting, now not all of it, obviously the railroad strike of 1877, Pinkerton was still alive because he did right. not to 1884, so he was involved with this. Now, at that point, he was not directly on boots on the ground at this point. He was most of the time just probably just taking and directing jobs. Yeah, and of course, when they're if they were involved, it could have I mean they were involved in, um, it, you know, the article said it was multiple union bust or trying to stop striking in the night and like not just those two instances of the homestead strike and the railroad strike but i mean it could have been as simple as providing security for officials when it's so it's not very specific it said what their role was yeah so the irony there is that pinkerton fled um anti-union type sentiment from his home country to turn around and be the opposition to unionization right. later in his life in his company. Now, as Rob just said, that is something that I think is important to note is you're primarily when it comes to the Pinkertons being involved in the union busting is you're going to find the ones where they were directly the, like the heavy hitter or the main opposition I'm assuming the majority of these instances, they weren't actually like the guns for hire type people that they're portrayed all the time. A lot of it probably was in terms of helping provide security for the building, for personnel, and maybe even um, like public officials, <clears throat> private like owners and, and all this stuff. And this is because a lot of times these unionizers were not, always peaceful and a lot of times are sabotage. So this is the ugly side of the union strikes is there was, you know, groups within the larger group, like there always is that made the decision to sabotage, you know, private property, try to arrest the building away from the owners and other non-union workers. Cause there's definitely instances where people who were workers who didn't want to unionize were ostracized from the, from the group. And so, right. There was hostility also from that group in some ways. And so I'm thinking that there was a lot of instances where it's like, hey, like it's not really safe for the boss to walk past his own company because he may get, you know, bludgeoned by some union workers. Now, I'm not saying that was the goal, but people people were a little bit more brave. (laughs) I mean, you're also talking like 10 to 15, 20 years removed from the Civil War. So... I mean, you also had, you know, you don't think about anarchists now, but back in the back then, anarchists were kind of a weird faction where they would insert themselves into situations to just cause mayhem. Like, honestly, it's it's like if you took a red versus blue, they would they would join the blue side so they could 
so hate against the red, vice versa. You know, it didn't. I'm not talking political political spectrum. I'm just talking. They would do that because they were anarchists. They just wanted chaos, <clears throat> and that was actually a consideration back then. So, the, as far as the Pinkertons, the only thing I consider where they were actual or could have been guns for hire was in the Homestead Strike because there were like 300 armed agents. I'm not saying that's what they were, but that was kind of what they were seen as, a small army or a small unit. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a few other cases where that was also the the uh, the moment of being hired, like, specifically for their armed forces. <laughs> so I mean, if you had to do it... Well, this is, you know, if you had to protect an asset or stop something from happening that you want, you know, I'm not saying a union or a union strike or anything, but like, wouldn't you want to hire the best guys? And those were the best guys. Yeah. I mean, they had a reputation of, of being efficient and good at their job. Yeah. Imagine like you like to sell fish and there's some anti-fish people around your fish store. Like you're going to hire the Pinkertons if you could. Uh, it's a dumb example, but you know it's. They did security. They did detective work. They did everything. Well, I mean, you go back to the point of them helping protect the president. You know, like that's a pretty good thing. I mean, if Lincoln got assassinated before the Civil War ever started, he wouldn't have been able to get assassinated later. <laughs> well, that may have been the case. But right, we wouldn't have had uh, the 18th Amendment, possibly. I mean, we would still would have had abolitionists, but not the personability of Abraham Lincoln. It would have been a very bad time. Abraham Lincoln was <laughs> the personality that the United States needed in that time in history, yeah. I think. But oh, yeah, I mean, he was the head of the Republican Party and he was a good like everyone liked him, he towered over everybody. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, historically speaking, if it wasn't for possibly for the Pinkertons, we wouldn't have had the 18th Amendment, or is it the 13th Amendment? 13th, um, anyway, the abolition um, of slavery um, as soon as we did. So we Well, can, there's also the possibility of us not even winning the Civil War. Right. I mean, there were other characters in the abolitionist movement um, that were perhaps even more influential than Abraham Lincoln, but he, you know, he was definitely the figurehead. He solidified it. Right. At the top, which I think was the big point. And he, um, he believed it. So he wasn't just a puppet. He actually believed it. He brought the, he brought it to the mainstream. Like this is the way it, like needs to be kind of thing. And uh, just a fact check, it was the 13th Amendment. The 18th Amendment was the anti-booze one. Less fun, you know. (laughs) (coughs) So I took a minute to investigate to see if the Pinkertons were involved in Prohibition. Mm -hmm. I couldn't find anything that said that they were, which would make sense, I guess, at this point. You had a little bit more of the... uh, organization of the U.S. Marshals and the federal government to invest, uh, involve themselves with that. But I did learn something <laughs> fascinating, which was in the 20s and 30s, 
So in 37, Congress passed the Wagner Act, which deemed that investigations into organization of workers was unlawful as it interfered with the rights of workers to organize. So this meant that the Pinkerton Agency had to refrain from accepting any contracts to investigate this organization and collective bargaining tactics of unions, which in 38 dropped their earnings to $1.2 million, which was down from more than $2 million the year before. So they made a lot of money from organizing or investigating unionization and organization efforts. Another thing was is that they were pretty... Uh, they increased their presence in bringing down um, gambling syndicates in horse racing in the 30s and 40s, which is pretty fascinating. Which I believe is very... Um very in the realm of organized crime. I think they did a lot of that. The gangs and stuff. They set them up and stuff. Yeah. So they were hired also as a way to, um, as like guard work for like mm. company guards and stuff like that. So kind of like your mall cop. Now, I'm not saying the Pinkertons are that level. I'm just saying they were hired by companies just to be general security as well. <laughs> Man, I think you'd have to be more than general security. There's, there, yeah, there's something special with those guys. I don't think they're, um, well, and so they had more of a shift in the sixties to be more on the security and risk management side opposed to detective work. <coughs> and they went public in 67. Hmm. So they were family owned all the way up until 67. Wow. They went international in the twenties. And only grew from there. Um, They were purchased in 83. So the Pinkertons were purchased by American brands for $162 million in 83. Um, So they ended up getting purchased by Thomas Walton. In '88, for 95 million, and merged it with his California Plant Protection Company. Um, let's see. Boom, 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 boom. I believe in '90 was it '98? Rob, was it '98? Whenever they were bought out by their current owners. Just on the page. Um. <clears throat> I was, yeah, I was looking at the. Uh, it's called uh, Secura Securitas AB. It's out of Stockholm. I'm trying to think. Do, 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 do. Yeah. Anyway, so they are owned by this international company, and they 1999, still. February. And they are still run and operating today. And as we mentioned, they primarily focus on private security and risk management for large companies and um, personalities, athletes, uh, even some governments hire them as private security. And they do get hired for certain kinds of investigations, I guess like high level um, investigations for large companies and corporations and of the like. So this brings us to probably one of the juiciest facts that was reported on in 2020. Rob, I know you've been itching to talk about this one. <laughs> yeah, so 
2019, 2020, uh, when Amazon, when their workers were trying to unionize, Amazon actually hired Pinkerton to get information on the uh, potential unionizers. Allegedly. A hundred percent allegedly. This is all fake. <clears throat> don't don't come at us, Amazon. It's all fake. Um, but allegedly, they, uh, I'm not going to say they were trying to union bust, but they were definitely trying to get information, get inside. And it's not really clear what their role was, but if you took the history of the Pinkertons, maybe you can glean some information from that. But I don't want to speculate too hard, you know. Yeah, I believe uh, the article I was reading about, um, which all these references that even though we're not stating exact uh, publications, they, we will have all these links in the description if you want to go read them for yourselves. Very fascinating. And also some from the Library of Congress for the historical references. Um, was that Amazon, like a spokesperson for Amazon, was saying that they were hired as, um, I believe, like package security. Like, that's not the right words, but it more or less they were there to try to make sure that they had a sufficient system of um, security over the packaging and like system. Like, right. like, like, like tracking, not tracking the packages, but mainly securing the warehouses. Yeah, I mean that transportation that make that's makes sense, you know. Um, now I think the speculation that comes in that they were trying to glean information of unionization was that these people were hired somewhat were in a position of being amongst the workers without them knowing who they were, like thinking they were just other employees. Yeah, perhaps that's the case, yeah. So that's kind of what I drew from it. Now you can read the article for yourself and kind of draw your own conclusions. I believe it is either Vice or Motherboard that kind of originally released this article. Um, And it's been covered by a few independent uh, journalists too. Some well-known, some not. But Uh, I think think what makes this fascinating is... And I guess it's kind of a romanticized idea that they were involved in speculation, or not speculation, involved in, allegedly involved in gathering information about potential unionization of workers in Amazon warehouses in 2020, given that the history of the company, like 100 years prior, over 100 years prior, were literally involved in doing that. Mm. But like I said, all this is kind of like alleged, speculative, speculative. Um, haven't really heard anything else of it, so I'm sure that this probably um, either is being litigated or there was never really any calls for suits to be filed or maybe there wasn't ever anything and this was just someone trying to I mean, create they, a cool they story. did nothing illegal. It's just, I think the story is, it's, it's kind of funny. Yeah, I think I, I don't think that they were, because if they were, I mean, we're in 2023. I feel like you would have heard of an actual lawsuit either being right. filed by Amazon or being filed by union representatives. Who knows? But I'm, I don't know anything about that, so I'm not going to speculate any further. Well, you know what's kind of funny is um, the company that owns Pinkerton, Pinkerton now out of Stockholm, which is called Securitas. 
Securitas, which is S E C U R I T A S, that um, 3% is owned by BlackRock, 2% by Vanguard. Just funny because. Are they the largest shareholders? <clears throat> no, they're not. They're not the largest shareholders, but um, I think it would be very interesting. I'm not saying we're going to do it, but it'd be very interesting to do a deep dive on BlackRock. Well, I'll tell you that that will not be for a while because a long time, yeah. Technically, we're still covering the 1800s, early 1900s. We're not to the modern civilization. Oh, no, this will be a one-shot way in the future. Way in the future. That's just something a pet project of mine, you know. Be interesting. So that kind of brings <coughs> us full circle on the Pinkerton Detective Agency. Um, are there any other things we want to, you know, discuss relating to them, Rob? I don't think so. You know, unless um, something comes out about them guarding the F or the UFO crash sites, um, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, so I, th- I think that's gonna that's gonna sum up this episode of Prestigious Minds. This is the promised Pinkerton episode that um, is more for, you know, fun and there is a little bit of history involved and, you know, some modern takes, but, you know, actually at the beginning, most of this is for, you know, historical reference and comedic um, um, conversation. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, it'd be funny. I mean, it'd be good if you looked at all the funny uh, lawsuits that were kind of brought up by the agency against, is it Rockstar? Um, no, it was uh, <coughs> Take Two. So, another, <laughs> in January of 2019, there was an article published by the Wall Street Journal um, investigating the lawsuit filed by the Pinkerton Agency of not looking like the bad guys, which... I give them that because most of the things that they were involved with was, you know, over 120 years ago, um, at least, you know, the popular negative press that they received from what they were involved in. And so basically they were saying that if you've ever heard of the game Red Dead Redemption 2, um, Pinkertons are very heavily referenced in there because the game's placed in like the late 1890s. And you're following a gang, like a bandit gang, and obviously the Pinkertons are known for taking down the bandits, and so they were seen as like the bad guys in the game, even though technically they're the good guys. Anyway, it's really funny. I recommend going and reading that article, um, and seeing like some because they reference a few other like lawsuits that people filed against other companies for other game, like supposedly like infringements or you know portrayals or likenesses, um. So who who developed um, Red Dead Redemption? Take Wasn't two, it, take two. I thought it was Rockstar for some reason. Yeah, they they're probably involved, but Take Two was the company I think that was referenced in the article. Oh okay. Um, now if you want to draw a little bit more irony between that article being released in early 2019 or late 2018, um, there and then with the article like probably a little over a year later in 2020 about them supposedly being involved in organization like efforts of union employee or Amazon employees, big stark contrast there. Yeah. (laughs) Like we're not the bad guys. 
one year later. Well, supposedly. <laughs> yeah. Allegedly. Yeah. I mean, but. So, yeah, I think that is all for the Pinkerton Detective Agency special. Yeah. It's good to be back. Yeah, we've been pretty busy. Hopefully, we'll be able to record again. And I think we're going to continue sticking to one episode a month for now. Maybe we'll leave them a little bit longer. I believe this will be the first episode that has minimal edits, so you'll catch all the bloopers. Oh, yeah. My Um, mistakes. Yeah. And open air dialogue and a little bit off the cuff, so less straightforward and more entertainment. I think this concludes this episode of Prestigious Minds. Thank you for listening to this episode of Prestigious Minds. That concludes today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, let us know how we can improve by leaving us a review on Apple Podcast. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at pmindspod. And go give us a follow over there where we discuss and share photographs, videos, and anything visual related to the podcast. And thank you for listening to Prestigious Minds.